You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The passage is from Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bowed him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came into life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the sands and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had received them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and hates gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and hates were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found reading the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for a good. Thank you, Rafa. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, as we come to this 
passage, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Peter says of some of the words of the Apostle Paul, that they are difficult to understand. And Father, we come to this passage with a sense of trepidation, of fear and trembling, as it's been understood in so many different ways. Uh, And it's actually uh, been a text that has been used within the church against one another, uh, to do battle against one another, rather than perhaps seeing uh, a common enemy in the devil and a common savior in Christ. And we ask that you would do a powerful work by your spirit among us. Uh, that you would use this time of dwelling on this text, these words from you, as a work of unifying us in the power of the Spirit, that you would allow your word to come through in a way that's strong and powerful to us, in a way that would convict us and challenge us, in a way that would warn us where we need to be warned, in a way that would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and we confess our utter need for you, God, to do this by your Spirit. We cannot do this alone. We ask that you would come now, Emmanuel, God with us, come by your spirit, speak to us, transform us by your spirit, we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, to the modern man and woman, the categories of this passage that we've just read in Revelation chapter 20 seem utterly strange, probably far-fetched, even fantastical. The end of history, you know, the slaying of a dragon, the defeat of death and the devil, this cosmic battle, this lake of fire and judgment. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? And what, what I want us to see this morning is that the strongly symbolic language of this chapter gives us a snapshot, a real picture of God's response to wickedness in our world, of God's response to wickedness. It is a telling of the tale of God's cosmic battle with death and the devil, with all that's wrong in our world, and with all that needs to be made right. All is not well in our world. We know this, you know this, probably in ways that are deeply personal to you, that all is not well, and in the face of all suffering, of all the darkness that we know, that we experience in this world, all the darkness that we can see in the present, but also in the past as we look back at world history and and, and across the world today, we see a ton of darkness, of despair, of brokenness, of sin, of alienation from God and and from one another. And what this passage tells us in the face of all brokenness, of all evil, of all wickedness, is that God has determined to make all wrongs right. He's come to settle accounts. Now we may be tempted to think that in the face of our own suffering, that God is indifferent to our suffering, that God is indifferent to our pain, that he doesn't care, or perhaps that he's not in control given the large-scale wickedness that seems to be able to prevail in the earth. It feels like God is far. God is hidden. God has abandoned us, perhaps. God is ambivalent. Uh, Maybe it feels even that God is cruel. He's cruel. How could he allow such pain, such wickedness to prevail in the earth? But what we find here in Revelation 20 is that the God of the Bible takes human suffering with absolute seriousness. He takes human suffering with absolute seriousness. He takes our suffering and our sin with 
with utmost seriousness. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering, in the midst of the deep brokenness of our world, will the wicked always win? Is God indifferent to sin and to suffering? Will death have the final word for you, for your family, and for the world as a whole? Our passage answers, in the epic battle between good and evil, between God and the devil, in this epic battle, Jesus has already won. Jesus is winning, and Jesus will win. Okay. This is what our passage affirms to us today. He's won, he's winning, and he will win. And this, of course, was good news. Um, we can forget, in all of the complexity of reading Revelation, uh, some of the the larger-than-life language that's used, we can forget that this news was written to a group of first-century Christians who are under persecution, and that this, this news was written to them as good news in the face of persecution, intense persecution, Christians being burned at the stake and thrown to the lions. It, it didn't always feel to them like Christianity was winning, uh, like the Christian faith was the true faith in the face of such despair, like Jesus was winning. Like Christians were victorious. It didn't always feel this way. And to such Christians in the first century, and even to us today, along with them, John instructs us in this book that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He's won, he's winning, and he will win. First, we'll consider that Jesus has won and how this plays out in our passage this morning. Our passage begins with an angel, or a, a word that can be translated messenger, a messenger descending from heaven and seizing, binding, and eventually slaying the dragon, who in this passage is identified with the devil and Satan, the ancient serpent of old. And this reference to the serpent is, of course, in the biblical imagination, identifying the dragon in this story with the opening pages of the scriptures. Right? Genesis chapter 3, where we find God saying that the woman will crush the, the head of the serpent. Right? And this, this, uh, this battle between the human race and this serpent figure ends up getting developed in all kinds of ways throughout the, the scriptures, where God's enemies are often identified as serpentine kind of figures. Uh, uh, you can think about Goliath, for example. Uh, identified as one who's wearing the scaly armor and whose head ends up being crushed and cut off. Right? There's a kind of a, a, a note back to the beginning promise about the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And these kinds of images come up time and again in, uh, through the scriptures. And so the reader is invited to wonder where and when, um, after, you know, following this, this promise in Genesis 3, that the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of the woman. The, the, the reader is invited to wonder, where and when is this going to happen? Where is this battle going to take place? Um, how? Uh, when? What will this look like, this slaying of the serpent dragon figure? And this is precisely the question of our passage, uh, that our passage engages this morning. I'll begin in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, 
so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Here we find that the serpent slaying proclaimed at the start of the Bible is, is again, it's, it's what's happening here. Um, and it happens, we find, according to Revelation 20, in two stages. Okay, there's a, this dragon slaying or serpent slaying that happen, happens in two stages with a thousand years between them. Now, I should note that the number 10 in the Bible is often used as the number of completion, okay, of fullness. And when it's multiplied as a hundred or a thousand, it signals vastness, uh, again, completion, but, but, uh, but an abundant completion. Right? Um, maybe similar to the way that you might say, I've got a thousand things to do today, a million things to do. You can think about the way that this comes up in the Bible itself. Uh, God, owns, God is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? Now, this is not a statement about, you know, that if there's more than a thousand hills in the world with cattle on it, that God doesn't own those also. Right, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills is that God owns it all. He owns it all. Right, a thousand is this number of completion. Uh, and in any case, what we find here is this two-stage victory over the dragon, where there's this millennium, this thousand-year reign that stands between them, between the first uh, the slaying of the dragon and then a final destruction of the dragon. Right, the first stage is when the angel, we're told, or the messenger who holds the keys to the abyss comes down now, with a broader reading of Revelation, uh, the person who holds the keys is identified with Jesus himself. Okay, Jesus, the Son of God, who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the one who has the authority to, to open and to, and to lock the abyss. And this messenger seizes the dragon, we're told, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and binds him for a thousand years. Why? Uh, why is this devil, this Satan figure, uh, or this dragon figure bound for a thousand years? Well, it goes on to say, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. The idea here, to be clear, is not that Satan is bound and killed at the outset, but that a decisive battle has been fought and won against the devil. And he is now, following this decisive battle, limited, debilitated, in one sense, in one sense from the text, that he is bound from deceiving the nations. Now, some, now this has been a point of division in the life of the church, but some, mistakenly, I believe, have come to interpret this first battle as something that is going to happen at some time in the future. Okay. Um, but it seems clear from the book of Revelation in the context of the broader scriptures of Israel and the New Testament that this has already happened. That this battle, that this initial battle of binding Satan has already happened. It's already happened in history. And you ask, when? When did this happen? Well, it happened in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus' parable about the binding of the strong man, Matthew 12 or Luke 11. That unless the strong man, man is bound, Jesus says, the people of God can't even begin to plunder and to oppose the works of the devil. And Jesus, as the parable sh shows, came to bind the strong man. That's what he came to do. And he does. Okay, he accomplishes this in his coming, which is why the demons flee before him in every case. Okay, which is why he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
following his sending out of the apostles to do ministry. In Jesus' ministry, we find that the devil and his works are being overthrown. And more than that, in his death and resurrection, the devil is decisively seized and bound even for a thousand years, which is to say, for that long period of time, that intervening period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Now, I admit that much of this sounds very strange to us, does it not? That Jesus even had to bind the devil? What could that possibly mean? This sounds very strange. Well, yes, I mean, we, we, we need this. And one of the things that I think we don't recognize, maybe particularly in our own Western context, is the need for Jesus to have bound the devil. Remember that for most of world history, and most cultures, and even to the present day in most places uh, outside of the West, people have been very much aware of demonic presences, right? a spiritual darkness in the world. This is real. I mean, this is real for the vast majority of the world and certainly the vast majority of human history. This is real. Uh, demonic presences, right? uh, spiritual darkness, spiritual attacks, things that every human culture has found different ways of responding to. How do we respond to this spiritual darkness? Right? And it's interesting uh, to note that with the spread of Christianity, there seems to be this real disarming of pagan religion. Okay? Uh, there are historians of religion who have interestingly noted this, that there seems to have been a real transition underway with the advent of Christi Christianity and its spread where paganism and the various gods of paganism have lost their purchase. Uh, they've lost their power. They've lost their social plausibility. It seems that at the advent of Christian faith and with the spreading of Christianity over the globe, there comes this undermining, this binding of the devil, uh, as though something fundamentally has shifted with the advent of Christ in his person, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And this claim seems to coincide very closely with one of the points made here in this passage, that the devil, the devil here in this first defeat, is not bound in every regard, okay, in every possible way, but specifically he's bound from what? From deceiving the nations. Now think about this. Up to this point in history, leading up to the death and resurrection of Christ, Yahweh, the God of Israel, remained almost exclusively the God of one nation, one nation, Israel. But the question we can ask is, what happens following Jesus' death and resurrection? What happens following this? Well, the nations come to believe. Okay, this is exactly how the narrative plays out. Think about a place like John 12, where Jesus says, now is the, time of, uh, now is the judgment of this world. Okay, Jesus is, has arrived on the scene. Uh, he's, he's doing battle with the devil. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, ruler of this world be cast out. And, and I, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself this wonderful promise. It's this wonderful indication and explanation of what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are all, all about. Right? He's come to bind the devil, to cast out the devil and the works of the devil. And he's come to establish his own reign in the world so that now the nations might come to know. So that all people, he's going to begin to draw all people to himself. And then we can ask the, the further question, what happens immediately after his death and resurrection and ascension? Well, the opening chapters of the book of Acts tell us, very specifically, we're told Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, 
Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs, this long list that we're told who are coming to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and who are believing, uh, who are embracing the gospel of Jesus. The nations are coming to trust in Christ, we find. Asians, Africans, Romans, Arabs, it's all in view here in the opening chapters of Acts. And, and it's like uh, uh, the writer Luke is trying to draw the reader's attention to say, Look what's happening following the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. The nations are flowing in, just as the ancient prophecies have prophesied. There's a sense in which the nations are no longer blinded. The nations are coming to faith. And this is what's happening in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Is that now he's now drawing all people to himself. The devil's been bound from deceiving the nations. And what was once this small religion in this obscure corner of the Roman Empire has since then, as we can you know, just make a historical observation, has since then grown to become the most, arguably the most dominant world force in the world. So that while less than 1% of the world population worshiped Yahweh, the God of Israel, in year zero, okay, or one, uh, you know, in the first century, what we find is today close to a third of the world population identifies as Christian. There's been this radical transformation of this tiny little movement in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire to see that this thing has become grown, uh, has has grown way beyond the bounds of Israel, right? To the nations, to the nations. But then there's a second stage of the devil's defeat that we find in verse seven and following. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Which is to say, the victory of Christ, which began his thousand-year millennial reign with the binding of Satan, will come one day to an end, when Satan will be released to deceive the nations once more. But, it's important to point out, to observe here, that it's precisely at this point, uh, it's precisely at the point where he's released to deceive the nations again, where he is decisively and immediately defeated, overthrown. We find in verse 9, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Some have pictured uh, the end times battle, the battle of Armageddon, as it's been called, to be this terrible war between two equally matched sides. But what's striking about this end times battle, as it's pictured here in Revelation 20, is that it isn't much of a war. It's not much of a war. The devil rounds up all who are opposed to Christ in the end. And in a moment, they're all destroyed. They're all destroyed, judged, and swiftly defeated. Jesus, we find, has won. And he will win. And the emphasis here is on his determination to bring in the nations. That God has never been about one particular ethnic group in opposition or exclusion to all the others, but rather he's been about bringing into reality a world religion. Okay, this is what Christianity is about. Anybody who claims otherwise is mistaken. Right, that God would just be about one ethnic people. That's not the Christian religion. It's not even the Jewish religion. Okay, the Jewish religion was one that opened up into the nations. Right? But rather... What we see is that God is bringing about, bringing into reality, this people of every tribe and tongue. And he's doing this through Jesus binding and defeating sin, death, and the devil. So Jesus has won. 
There's a real sense in which we can look back to the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and say he's won. Uh, The decisive blow has been given to the works of the devil and death. But we move on in our passage to the next section where we find not only has he won, but he's winning. He's presently winning, reigning with his saints even now. Look with me at verse 4 and following. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now again, it has become popular in some Christian circles, uh, particularly in the 20th century, to think about these in futuristic terms. Okay? That these have an entirely future referent point. Okay? Um, but I believe that this misses the point, or at least it misses an initial fulfillment. Okay? So it could be that this is, there's an initial fulfillment here and that this does point forward in some fundamental way to something to come. But what I believe we're instructed to see, and this would take much more time to unpack, so I'll just assert it here and we can talk after, is that the mark of the beast in this context is the idolatry of Israel and the nations who are marked by Caesar worship. Uh, remember the time where they are calling for Jesus' crucifixion, right? Crucify him, crucify him. And then say shortly after, we have no king but Caesar. This is coming from the Jews in collusion with the Romans. Kill Jesus. Our king, our allegiance is to Caesar. Our allegiance is to Rome. But here John speaks of the remnant who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And they would die for it, of course. This remnant would die for it. And so be identified as priests of God and of Christ, raised from the dead to reign with Christ. They would not worship the beast. They would not worship the beast. And it begs the question for us today. Whom do you worship? What are we worshiping as, even as God's people? And it seems to me that all of us, in our own ways, are being beckoned to demonstrate our fidelity, our faithfulness to some so-called God, whether that's an institution, whether that's the nation, whether that's a secular political regime. All of us are being beckoned by some other God to have our ultimate allegiance aligned with that so-called God. And that this is what it is to identify with the beast in opposition to Christ. The beast as that which opposes Christ and his worship and his authority in the world. How many of us will be marked with whatever marks we need in order to not stand out in our culture, to not face persecution of any kind? We'll receive whatever marks we might need and so be marked as belonging to the beast. It's tempting to choose life and safety, being included, avoiding persecution, living in comfort, being part of the majority. But what we find in the message and life of Jesus and in this passage is that it isn't safety and it isn't hanging on to life, which is the way to life, but rather Jesus' way is the way of death. It's the way of self-giving. It's the way of dying to self, where death is the way to life. If anyone wishes to save his life, Jesus says, he will lose it. And whoever loses his life 
will save it. He goes on in verse 4. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, some may envision these people who are raised with Christ to be this special group who suffered martyrdom, uh, and so had this special first resurrection that was exclusive to them. But again, I believe this misses the mark of what we're called to see here. And that instead, what John sees here is consistent with what Paul says elsewhere. That in Christ, we are a people who have been raised with him to the heavenly places. We've, we who've believed and been baptized stand as those who have been raised with Christ. We've undergone what John calls the first resurrection. We've been raised, and we will be raised. Or as Paul puts it, you've been buried with him in his baptism, uh, with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith. Now, this is a strange thing to say, I admit, another strange thing to say. But it's what the Bible says, that you and I, by faith in Christ, have been united with Christ, and we've been united with him in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. We have been raised with him. All that is Christ's belongs to us. All that is Christ's is ours. His obedience, his his self-offering to the Father for our atonement, his death, we've been crucified with him, and his resurrection, all is ours. We've been united with Christ. And so we have, in a a very real way, and, and I believe in the most fundamental way, the resurrection, a first resurrection, has already happened. For those in Christ, we have been raised with him. And John goes on in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, in short, what we find here is that all who are in Christ, all who refuse to worship the false god of the empire, the beast, the nation, and to persevere in Christ, we are those who are now presently reigning with Christ through this millennial reign, okay, through the reign that he's established in his life, death, and resurrection. We, the people of God in him, who have been raised with him, we are the ones who presently reign with him. To which, to which you say, what millennial reign? You know, what are you talking about, millennial reign? It doesn't look like we're reigning over anything as Christians. In fact, it looks like the world's getting darker, and we are the ones who are being dominated. The future of Christians and of Christianity, for that matter, is not looking very good. It's not looking very bright, to which I say, I believe that perspective misses the bigger picture, which is what John gives us here, that yes, the battle is real, and yeah, it may look very grim, It may feel intolerable, the suffering at times. But that's because victory, after the pattern of Christ, comes through death and suffering and through long endurance, through a millennial reign. Not a hundred years, not a single lifetime, but through a millennial reign. This is how victory comes, long and slow and through suffering. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, The end is only going to come after Christ has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now here's here's one way to think about 
how Christ has already established his rule. When the Romans were expanding their military power okay, in the first several centuries uh, AD, um, you know, taking over large parts of you know, North Africa, Asia, Middle East, and beyond, it was one thing to say that they were in charge, that they had conquered, that they had you know, defeated, and that they had power, that they had real power, that, that, uh, that, that the Roman emperor, that he was the emperor over, over the world. But it was quite another to bring about concrete change in every time and place and to see everybody come to a proper understanding of and relationship to the emperor and to the empire as a whole. And so it is with God's kingdom. Jesus is king. Okay. When, when, when missionaries go into foreign lands that have never, never heard the gospel, they, they ought not to go in saying, would you please you know, believe and bring in the reign of Christ so that Jesus might reign in this place? No. You go in and you declare that Jesus is king. He's established his rule and his authority over all the, the earth. Okay, everything belongs to him. He is king. Now the question is whether or not you will recognize and bow to his kingship. Okay, he's already been made king of all the earth. Jesus is king. He reigns over all the earth. He's, al he's already seized and bound the devil. He's already purchased sinners with his blood. He's already completed the decisive battle with sin, death, and the devil. It is finished, Jesus says from the cross. And yet, we observe that the outworking of his dominion, bringing all peoples into his good and glorious light, still needs to be brought about. And this, this is the basic work, the fundamental work of the church, the body of Christ in the world. Not through military power, as has been done, or through domination and domineering, but through the ministry of the word, the word of Christ, prayer, through suffering, through sacrifice, even martyrdom, all after the power of Christ and in the uh, after the pattern of Christ and in the power of Christ, until all his enemies have been made a footstool and death itself is destroyed. Jesus has won. Jesus is winning. And finally, more briefly, we find that Jesus will win. In his final judgment over the wicked, Jesus will win. You can look with me at verses 11 and following. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this obviously is an incredibly sober and grave warning. It points forward to the final judgment, a judgment which is described in this text as a judgment according to works. Now many, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you may be surprised by this, um, that people will be judged according to what they have done, or had done, as it says here. Aren't we saved by faith and not by works? What, what does this mean, judgment according to what they had done? But it's important to recognize that this is simply a repetition of what Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 25, or what Paul says in Romans 2, or what James says throughout his letter, and Peter says in his own way. Everyone will be judged on the basis of what they have done. 
Okay. That's throughout the scriptures. Now, of course, for those who have trusted in Christ, there will be a merciful judgment, even if some, as Peter says, only escape as through the fire, without much to show. But for the rest, for all who stand apart from Christ, whose name is not found in the book of life, for the rest, there will be an absolutely, not, not severe, but just judgment. It's a just judgment that comes on all apart from Christ. There will be an eternal and fiery judgment for all who stand in defiance of the God who made them, for all whose names are not found written in the book of life. It's a sober warning to us to say that if we miss relationship with the God who made us, if we live our entire lives in defiance against the God who made us, never pay any attention to this God, to drawing near to this God, to finding out how we can walk in right relationship with this God, we will be judged accordingly. And there will be a just judgment in the end for all the things that we've done and left undone. Jesus is one. He's defeated death and the devil, and their end is coming soon. And the nations are flooding in in the meantime, and will keep flooding in until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is winning. He's raised the church to life in him. We've received this first resurrection and are reigning with him even now, even if it doesn't look like it, and we will continue to reign with him until all the enemies of God are made a footstool and Jesus finally will win in his final judgment of all the wicked, in his judgment according to works. And the question I believe this passage leaves us with is again a sober question. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? It might seem like a straightforward question for the church, but I believe that this question is actually directed first and foremost to the church, to those who are prone to worshiping the beast or worshiping Christ, that we have a decision to make. Which side are you on? The side, the side of Caesar, whose gate is wide and way is easy and leads to destruction, or the side of Jesus, whose gate is narrow, whose way is hard, but it leads to life. Now, I said at the start, that the Lord God of Israel takes our sin and suffering with utmost seriousness. So serious, in fact, that he has entered into our suffering with us, defeated sin, death, and the devil, and will judge the earth on the basis of what each person has done. Jesus is the strong man who binds and plunders the devil in order to give good gifts to his own house. And I'll close with this, as Jesus says in Luke 11. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray. Our Father, in considering a word like this from your mouth in this apocalyptic book of Revelation to John. Father, we confess that this is, in many ways, a, both a glorious word and a hard word. It's a hard word for us who are prone to sin, prone to running away, to going our own way. Uh, prone to not submitting to the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. 
And Father, we confess that we are a weak and needy people and, and we need your help. We need you to send your spirit to empower us to live the lives that we ought to, to live to the glory of your holy name. We ask that you would do this in us, your church, for your glory in the world and for your light to go forward to the nations. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.